We learn from Paul Shackle that there was a victory for coal miners in the anthracite fields in 1900. After that strike, the ranks of the United Mine Workers of America grew dramatically. The operators complied with only some of the demands of the miners, though. They adhered to a new wage scale, although they did not recognize the miners' committee. Safety improvements were generally ignored by the operators. The coal operators felt that the union might demand subsequent concessions. Some of the companies responded by fencing off the collieries, a type of fortification protecting mines and equipment. They also began stockpiling coal as a guard against any subsequent prolonged strike. The UMWA met in 1901 and voted to strike if the operators did not recognize the union. John Mitchell saw the need for negotiations and compromise, and he stalled any action for a while. The terms of the 1900 contract were about to expire when he met with the operators. They refused to negotiate with the union. In March 1902, the UMWA met again and voted once more to strike. On May 12, 1902, John Mitchell called for a temporary suspension of work in the mines. However, three days later, the miners met at Hazleton and voted to continue the strike. More than 147 miners walked off the job. It was the beginning of one of the largest strikes in American history. Miners asked for the same terms as two years earlier, including wages that equaled those found in the bituminous region, better safety conditions, and freedoms from the company store. John Mitchell wrote to Mother Jones about the strike and told her that the strike will probably be the fiercest strike in the Union's history. It will be a fight to the end. The UMWA will either emerge triumphant or be completely annihilated. By September, politicians were urging President Theodore Roosevelt to work on settling the strike because they feared a backlash in the upcoming election. And President Roosevelt did intervene and tried to encourage arbitration, and the operators agreed to that arbitration by a presidential commission known as the Anthracite Coal Strike Commission. And the miners went back to work on October 23, 1902, after striking for 163 days. The United Mine Workers Journal reported on October 30, 1902, that a convention of 700 delegates voted in favor of arbitration by the commission. At the end of the commission, they all were singing, My country, tis of thee. The journal reported a score of races mingled in the hall, Saxon and Celt, Teuton and Slav, Latin and the native-born, and all joined. One-third of them could not follow the words or melody, but they knew that the hymn was of America, and their hearts sang. The echo of the chorus may well ring through the land, for it is a greeting of free men to a larger freedom that they won for all. That from the United Mine Workers Journal, October 30, 1902. And that all came from Paul Shackle's study and archaeology of unchecked capitalism. The University of Scranton has received a multi-year grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to explore Scranton's stories and in so doing to tie those stories to the history of the nation. 
The anthracite strike of 1902 is exemplary, and it demonstrates the direct relationship between what was happening in northeastern Pennsylvania and how the impact was being felt nationwide, with the reverse holding true as well. As the university opens the fall 2022 phase of Scranton's story, our nation's story, the organizers will present a program titled The 1902 Anthracite Strike, Causes and Consequences, a 120th anniversary evaluation, featuring Dr. Robert Walensky, noted sociologist and anthracite historian, with a panel discussion as well. And that is Thursday, September 8th at the Lackawanna County Courthouse in Scranton. We had a chance to speak by phone with Dr. Walensky in anticipation of Labor Day 2022 and his presentation on the 8th about the overall historical context for the 1902 strike. The 19th century, which is the Industrial Revolution century, and by, and by 1820, 1830, England was well into it. It was just beginning and very, very beginning in the United States. The railroad, the steam engine, and of course, essential to all that was coal, because they had used up so much wood in England and Wales and Scotland, and they virtually gone, so they, they turned to coal to uh, fire the boilers, which could produce the steam, which could power the Industrial Revolution. And so in, in the Wyoming Valley and northeastern Pennsylvania, generally, this doesn't take off to really after 1840, 1850, 1860, and then, and then a huge burst after the Civil War, which ends in 1865. By 1900, we had, we had really overtaken England as, as the world's number one industrial country because we had such vast resources here. Remember England, uh, and I'm talking about England in part because it began there and in part because I just took a tour with 12 intrepid coal mining, uh, you know, coal crackers to England to study the Industrial Revolution and also in Scotland and Wales just this past June. But we, we had really come on late in the century. So by the 1902 strike... We're the world's uh, number one coal producer, and the, because the bituminous fields were now being exploited in the in Ohio and West Virginia and, and, and those kinds of places, so uh, it was coal. It was coal, coal, coal. Wood had been the fuel. It was it was exhausted in England. There are plenty of great amounts of, of wood in the United States, and it was used. But coal was just so much better, and that burned you know burned so much better that it it was used. Of course, in steam engines as well, locomotives and, and uh, factories and wherever else for home heating. Let us not forget home heating. So the, the world in, in 1902, the uh, energy world, was very much about coal, predominantly bituminous by then. Anthracite was the dominant fuel until the Civil War, but bituminous in 35 states. Soft coal, much lower grade. We have anthracite, the highest grade, in 10 counties in the United States, and those are in northeastern Pennsylvania. So, you know, you right now at WVIA, you're sitting right in the center of the mother load of hard coal in the northern hemisphere. It was the first coal to be exploited because it was east of the Alleghenies. It was east of the mountains. But, but even the Pittsburgh coal and the central Pennsylvania coal around Clearfield, that's bituminous. That's bituminous. And it came later. I mean, it was still good, but there was nothing like anthracite. I mean, you know, in World War I, for example, the, the battleships and, and the ordinary merchant marine ships, they preferred anthracite because it didn't leave these huge plumes of smoke that the enemy could spot. Whereas bituminous, 
huge plumes of, of smoke, much less desirable. There were lives at stake in that case. Most, most definitely. Most yeah. definitely. It was, it was the preferred fuel, but there was just too much bituminous in the world, and gradually it became cheaper, and gradually anthracite reserves became more expensive because you had to dig deeper veins to get to it. Those were more expensive. And over time, bituminous took the lead in every area except the East Coast home heating. Anthracite dominated that really until up to World War, World War II and shortly thereafter. The 1902 anthracite strike was experienced far and wide, and it was the necessity of getting coal to people for their furnaces that had something to do with the pressures even up to the federal level to get this thing resolved. Yeah, because it was the main fuel, and the president at the time, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, he he was as concerned as anybody was about the fact that the winter was coming on, and he didn't want people, you know, freezing, you know, burning the family furniture or, or something like that. So uh, this was the first major strike where the president of the United States got involved. It was a matter of economic development. It was a matter of keeping the, the general public happy. Politicians always want to do that. And, and a matter of keeping homes warm and steam engines going, because we had steam ships, of course. We had steam locomotives. We had steam-driven engines and factories. But it, really was, it really was key. So Teddy Roosevelt got involved and played a fairly even-handed approach. Uh, in previous disasters, the federal government sort of lent its, its support to the owners, as in, for example, the homestead strike in the 1880s and the various other railroad strikes, 1877, which affected Scranton. Scranton had a part of that strike and the National Railroad Strike, violent. And the federal government sent in troops. It didn't, it didn't like the unruliness of and federal government was generally the Office holders were generally anti-union, but uh, Teddy Roosevelt was even-handed. He didn't like the coal barons, frankly. One coal baron named Bayer claimed in a letter, which received wide publicity, that God himself had given the coal owners the right to exploit this resource for the good of mankind. And they were the owners. It's sort of like an um, owner's version of the divine right of kings to rule. Remember that one? For a long time, King said that, that God wanted them to rule their countries. Uh, and this is a kind of anti-democratic position. We don't need democracy because God wants kings and queens here. Well, that was the similar version that, that Bayer was spouting, and it really rubbed Teddy Roosevelt the wrong way. It rubbed the general public and many newspaper editorialists the wrong way. So uh, Teddy demanded the coal barons who were really under the control of J.P. Morgan, the New York financier. We still have, you know, Morgan Stanley Banks. We still have J.P. Morgan, is probably the richest man in the world at the turn of the century. He didn't make anything, but he owned everything. He put together AT&T when he bought out Thomas Edison. J.P. Morgan put together the United States Steel Company when he bought out Andrew Carnegie. He, he really was a great capitalist financier, and uh, he... He bought out the anthracite railroads, and the anthracite railroads owned coal companies, you know, like the Glen Alden was owned by the DL&W, the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railroad. And so he had five big, five big railroads, and J.P. Morgan owned them at the turn of the century. So he sat on those coal owners and said, listen, I want this settled. I want you to compromise with these workers. I don't think he went so far as to say this. They have a right to unionize, 
which they did in the 1890s. The first successful anthracite union was the United Mine Workers of America. There had been a parade of anthracite union attempts in the second half of the 1800s, beginning with the Bates, Bates Union in 1848, failed one after the next failed, the Rookiemen's Benevolent Association, right around the Civil War time, failed. But the UMWA persisted. It began in Ohio, soft coal, and came to anthracite, and, and the anthracite workers wanted it because they were, they were being exploited, and they, and they had to pay high prices in the company stores. You know the stories. And uh, very unsafe working conditions. And uh, so they formed the UMWA, and they staged the strike in 1900, the first big one, and it was successful. But they weren't satisfied with conditions, and they were feeling their oats, and they knew the country needed the anthracite. So they went on strike again in 1902. And this year, of course, is the anniversary of that strike, 120th anniversary. We're having this program sponsored by the University of Scranton and others. We're having it at the Lackawanna County Courthouse on September 8th. And it's a, it's a retrospective. It's a reanalysis. It's another look at the O2 strike. Why did it happen, its causes and consequences, what it meant for the region. So I'm going to be speaking at that event along with other folks, and we hope that the community might be available beginning at 5.30 at the Lackawanna County Courthouse on September 8th. And it's appropriate that it's at the courthouse. We won't want to tip your hand. We want you to fill us in. But there were hearings following the strike, and we know that one prominent figure in American jurisprudence was involved in the hearings. And just tell us a little bit about what Clarence Darrow had to do with anything. Well, this is precisely why the organizers, including Carolyn Bonacci from the University of Scranton, but the Lackawanna Historical Society folks of Marianne Savakinas over there are involved with this as well, and other people in, in, in Lackawanna, especially Lackawanna County. This is why they wanted to get the courthouse, because there were indeed hearings, hearings on the strike. What were the causes of this strike? Why did it hurt? Why did it occur? What did the workers have to say? What did management have to say? And these went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and um, it, they produced volumes, which we have, which we have the transcripts, so we know what people said. And there were some heartrending stories about, about young girls. And one young girl testified that it, her, her, her father died and her mother had died and she was an orphan and she had working as a, as a kind of a maid and had several brothers and sisters who had been adopted because they had big families back then, as you, as you probably know. But workers talking about horrible working conditions and accidents, constant accidents. I mean, anthracite per ton mined was, was much less safe than bituminous mining because companies didn't invest in safety, but also because of the, of the, the lay of the coal. The main way men were killed were through roof falls, not through major explosions, although major explosions took plenty of lives. And, and underground fires and poisonous gases. But the main way men died was in twos and threes and ones and fours through roof falls. And there are stories in there about people getting maimed in those hearings. Again, we have the transcripts. So it's very historic to have this event in the courthouse, in the room, in the room where so many folks testified. President Roosevelt appointed the Anthracite Strike Commission, eminent group of men, 
uh, very eminent judges and, and, and political leaders, and, and one sociologist was required to be on there, a social scientist for balance. And uh, for, the, for, the, uh, for the miners, they hired Clarence Darrow. And Clarence Darrow was one of the nation's most famous and, and effective lawyers, always on the side, it seemed, of the, of the working person or the, you know, the victim. We know him also from the famous Scopes trial, the Monkey trials, which happened much later, where he debated William Jennings Bryant and lost that case. But Bryant was so, was so embarrassed by the whole thing. But Darrow was for the, for the little guy. You know, he, he was for the guy who, who had his civil rights being trod upon or his working rights being um, trod upon. So Darrow uh, performed. He performed, and he, he did what he had to do. And uh, there was no verdict, of course, in the Strike Commission hearings. They just heard the stories and then produced the, produced the final report. And that report led to a 10% wage increase for the miners, which was a big increase back then. Of course, 10% of a small amount still a small amount, but it was 10%. And they had other provisions. Uh, not everyone got 10%. But there were other provisions that, uh, that they were pleased to receive, and, and, and Darrow considered it a success, and, and the miners considered it a great success. The miners at that time being led by John Mitchell. He was the president of the United Mine Workers of America, uh, a very popular, very popular guy. And one of the things that I'm going to do in my presentation without, again, as you say, spilling all the beans, but I'm going to talk about what I'm talking to you about, the, the main facts, what people probably you know, know about the anthracite, which they can easily read about the anthracite strike, very historic strike of 1902, lasted almost six months. And then I'm going to talk about what people probably do not know about the anthracite strike of 1902. Uh, I'll give you one little snippet there. The valuable and, and vital role of the Catholic Church. There's pictures of Bishop Hoban, with John Mitchell and President Roosevelt. They've been putting papers off and on over the, over the decades. Hoban certainly supported the strikers, but why did he support the strikers? Because the Catholic Church had a sea change in their approach to labor, and especially organized labor. Leo XIII, Pope Leo XIII, writes an encyclical, 1891, called Rerum Navarum, and in that encyclical, he takes up the cause of the working class. The working class, truly an invention of the Industrial Revolution, the laborer, the factory worker, the coal miner. And Leo said they have a right to organize a union because management is organized into these trade associations. And there's power and influence in an organization, in an association. They're inherently powerful. So the workers should have that right, too. And so uh, the world's bishops in Europe, this is Germany and the industrialized world, uh, and Britain by this point, of course, was the Church of England, but there were still some Catholics in England, but it wasn't that effective there. But it was in Germany, and it was in, in uh, France, Catholic country, in Italy, a Catholic country, where they seemed to have the, the, the Pope, no pun intended, the Pope put his imprimatur on organized labor. And uh, so Bishop Hoban, picking up that that cause, he selects Monsignor John J. Curran. John J. Curran, who was then just Father John Curran, wasn't yet promoted to Monsignor, but he, he becomes the miners' advocate, and he participates in these negotiations right next to Mitchell, who became his best friend, or a very good friend. In fact, Mitchell, John Mitchell, you may know, is buried in Scranton. He's from Illinois originally. Uh, buried in Scranton, he's a Midwesterner originally. He's buried in Scranton, 
and he converts to Catholicism right before he dies and uh, converts, and Curran officiates at his, at his funeral at the, at the cathedral there in Scranton. But anyway, Curran is, is the miners' priest. He's the miners' advocate for the next 30 years. He's involved in all the strikes, all the uprisings. He's negotiating with the Franklin Roosevelt administration in the 1930s over a huge strike. The topic of the book I am currently writing, as a matter of fact, the, the whole uprising of the 1930s labor unions in, in anthracite in the Wilkes-Barre Scranton area. So, Karen, uh, the role of the Catholic Church, that's one of the things I'm getting involved with. One last thing about this, Erica, by 1900, the majority of the mine workers were Catholic, and that was a huge change, because throughout the 1800s, they were mainly British. They were the first ones over here, Welsh, Scots, English, and Irish. Don't forget, Ireland was part of Britain uh, really until the 20s and, and, and beyond, and Germans, and there were some Dutch miners, and there were other miners. But after the Civil War, in come the Eastern and Southern Europeans. These were recruited. These immigrants were recruited by the owners. They wanted these Eastern and Southern Europeans because they thought that they didn't know beans about labor unions. Because the Brits and the Germans, they're the ones that organized this parade of labor unions, which I have mentioned were defeated by the owners through a great deal of effort. Great deal of effort. The owners were extraordinarily anti-union. And, and they pulled it off for half a century. But the, the Poles, and there's research on this, the Poles and the Ukrainians and the Russians and the Slovaks and, you know, all this, all this Slavic immigrants, and then, of course, the Italian immigrants, they were absolutely vital. And there's, again, I didn't do that research, but the research is out there. They were vital to the formation and the success of the UMWA in anthracite, and they were vital to the success of the 1902 strike because they were absolutely loyal John Mitchell in the UMWA, and they believed that they had their church on their side because these Eastern and Southern Europeans were Catholics. And they learned, by the way, they learned their radicalism. They learned their, their, their labor unionism from the Brits and from the Germans. So it was a, it was a kind of a, a meshing of different ethnic groups into labor, you know, labor solidarity. Dr. Robert Walensky, noted sociologist and anthracite historian, author of many studies about the region and the history of anthracite, and he will be the featured speaker at an event on Thursday, September 8th at the Lackawanna County Courthouse, hosted by the University of Scranton and its National Endowment for the Humanities program, Scranton Story our nation's story. And that will be held at the Lackawanna County Courthouse. And as we heard, it's a very significant site because hearings following the 1902 anthracite strike were actually held there and Clarence Darrow was representing the miners. Admit the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. The program is titled The 1902 Anthracite Strike.
Causes and Consequences, a 120th anniversary evaluation. Dr. Wolensky will be on hand with a presentation, and there will be a panel discussion to follow. And again, that's Thursday, September 8th at the Lackawanna County Courthouse at 5.30 in the afternoon, and you are invited to attend. It's part of Scranton's story, our nation's story, and that's a project that was launched in October 2021 with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The inaugural theme was Portrait of Scranton, Portrait of a Nation, including a keynote lecture with Scranton-born prolific author Jay Perini and a Jane Jacobs walk focusing on Scranton, Pennsylvania's downtown Lackawanna Avenue. The events have been continuing and the upcoming theme this fall from the Industrial Revolution to Act 47 and beyond and from immigrant to citizen still to come. For more information on the web, you can find them at scranton.edu slash scranton story. Scranton.edu slash Scranton story. The 1902 anthracite strike causes and consequences a 120th anniversary evaluation featuring our guest today on Art Scene, Dr. Robert Walensky, noted sociologist and anthracite historian, and a panel discussion as part of that program on Thursday, September 8th at the Lackawanna County Courthouse getting underway at 5.30. For more information on the web, scranton.edu slash scranton story.